So we will stay in Luke 19 in our Bibles. Luke chapter 19. We're looking this morning specifically at Palm Sunday. And then we'll look at uh, Easter Sunday next week. And so I encourage you to be here for that and to be a part of that. Uh, as was always already mentioned in the worship time, um, the celebration, what Palm Sunday is meant to be a reminder of is Jesus Christ entering into Jerusalem. And uh, it's just a few days before his crucifixion and then a week, exactly a week prior to his resurrection in which we celebrate on Easter and uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And, and, um, and with that, we see this uh, extraordinary celebration as the reason why we call it Palm Sunday is because palm branches were placed in the street and as Jesus Christ's donkey was uh, passing over those palm branches, there was an extraordinary excitement. Everybody was just really motivated because Jesus Christ was gonna come in to Jerusalem and he was going to establish his kingdom um, the, the Jewish people were very much convinced that Jesus Christ was going to do this. As a matter of fact, all of the miracles that he performed prior to this were uh, a stage set for, uh, in their minds, for, wow, this would be the, this would be the perfect king. Um, he's able to feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Uh, he's able to raise the dead. He's able to heal the crippled. And there's really no limitations to what Jesus Christ is capable of doing. And so he would make a perfect king. He would make a, a perfect partner in, in, in what we're trying to accomplish. And so the, the Jewish people were very much celebrating the Lord Jesus Christ coming in to set up his kingdom. And, and, and really, if you think about it uh, from a biblical perspective, they weren't just expecting him to set up his kingdom, but they were really expecting him to set up their kingdom. And they were, they were the, the emphasis in their minds were, Jesus is going to come in, he's going to uh, destroy all the Roman leaders, and he's going to wipe them all out, he's going to set up his kingdom so that we can reign in Jerusalem and, and, uh, and Israel and no longer be under Roman tyranny and un, under Roman leadership. And so what's interesting, as we see here in our text, this was already read, and, and I'm going to read a little bit more, um, just to back up a little bit, to give you a little bit of perspective, back to verse 37. The Bible says, And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had, they had seen. And you'll, again, you'll notice the emphasis is on the mighty works that Jesus Christ had done and, and remember this, for three and a half years, Jesus Christ had performed extraordinary miracles amongst these people. Um, there was no reason to doubt in this situation that Jesus Christ was who he said he was. There was no reason to doubt that he was capable of doing what he said he was capable of doing. There was no reason for them to not desire to follow him. For all intents and purposes, this was the perfect leader that was going to... Um, in their minds, set up their kingdom over them. The Bible says that they were celebrating. And uh, the Bible says in verse number um, 38, saying, they're, 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 all the mighty works that they have seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples 
And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. In other words, someone's going to worship the Lord, amen? And he is worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. And if men will not worship the Lord, someone will worship the Lord. And, uh, and we know that to be true. We go on, though, and we don't stop there. The Bible says, again, he, he reiterates what he has already said as they're drawing near to the city. Um, he sees the city. And these, there's, there's four simple words here, and this is going to be kind of the basis of what we're going to look at, and we'll look at the whole text. But the Bible says that he weeps over the city. In other words, Jesus Christ begins to cry, and you can kind of get a picture of it. I, I've been in these situations before with my wife where um, I'm really, really excited about something, and I'm uh, passionate about it and excited about it, and I look over at my wife, and she's, and she's crying. And I'm like, okay, at some point in time, I didn't get it, right? Anybody else in here like that? Anybody else in here not get it sometimes when it comes to your wife? All right. At some point in time along the way on this journey, if you can kind of picture that scenario where we just don't get it sometimes, at some point in time, these people didn't get it. All of these people following the Lord, here they are, and they're in this, this uproar of excitement. They're in this uproar of joy. They're in this uproar of praise. And, and, the, and the person for whom they're worshiping and praising, you just picture it in your mind. Here is the one that's on the donkey, and they're all celebrating this one, and they're all excited about this one, but what's this one doing? And the Bible says that he's in, he's in tears. He's, he's crying. Not, not just crying in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, you know, a few tears running down his face, but the, the word literally means to, to, be, to be engrossed in tears. It, it carries with the idea of being passionately crying. He's He's weeping over what he sees. He's weeping over what he knows. Just a few chapters before, Jesus Christ describes to his disciples exactly what's going to happen when he enters into Jerusalem. And it's at this moment what Jesus Christ is going to do. Yes, for three and a half years, he proved himself to be worthy. He proved himself to be significant. He proved himself to be sufficient. But in this moment, as he enters into Jerusalem, he's coming to destroy everything that these people believed in. He's coming to unpack and undermine everything that they trusted in. Right when he enters into the city, he knows he's going to the temple and he's going to turn the tables over. And everything about their system of religion. You see, the, 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 the life of Jesus was to Point a finger at a person, not a system. And so the very end of his work here in this world was first to prove himself three and a half years, and the very end of it was to undermine and uproot the things that kept people from following him and not following a system. Jesus Christ looks out over this place and he weeps. It's interesting because we only find Jesus Christ weeping two times in the scriptures. Here and in John chapter number 11, he weeps over Lazarus. In both cases, in both cases, Jesus Christ's tears were a result of man's unbelief. In both cases, Jesus Christ 
performed a miracle. Jesus Christ performed many miracles, but the issue wasn't the miracle. The issue was that men did not believe, not in the miracle, but in the miracle worker. What Jesus Christ knew is that these people are missing the point. They're missing it. They're missing out on everything that is important and significant. We're reminded when Jesus Christ goes to the cities and the towns and people are blind and people are deaf and people are, are lame and he asks them, what do you want from me? He asks this, this question over and over again throughout the gospels. What do you want from me? And, and their answer is always something physical. We want to be able to see. We want to be able to hear. We want to be able to walk. And Jesus Christ looks over Jerusalem and he, and he, and he acknowledges and he understands and he recognizes that you've missed it. You've missed what really matters. You've missed that God the Son has been walking amongst you for three and a half years. You've missed what matters. You've missed the changed life. You've missed the transformation that Jesus Christ could bring, not just physically, but, but spiritually. You've missed the deliverance that Christ can bring. It saddens my heart this morning because I believe that we're in a very similar situation where God is with us today. God's presence is here. He's here in the form of his Holy Spirit. And he works amongst us and he works in us and he works through us. And my fear is, is that like those people 2,000 years ago who walked with Jesus for three and a half years and saw all that he was capable of doing and missed it, that we're missing something. That we're missing something important and we're missing something significant. It's amazing how so many of us follow Jesus until he turns our life upside down starts to shake out all of those sinful ways and starts to turn us another direction and we miss it. Well, Lord, I didn't buy into that. I didn't desire that. Well, that's why Jesus came. He came to destroy all things that we trust in, that we might trust in him. He came not to save us temporarily, he came to save us eternally. He came not just to bring physical healing. He didn't just come to feed people with bread. He came to feed them with his word. Amen. He didn't just come to make people hear physically. He came to make them heal here spiritually. The Bible says in Isaiah 65 and verse 2, I have spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following after their own desires. He repeats this in Romans 10. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And then he says in John 1 and verse 11, he came unto his own and his own people did not receive him. See, Jesus Christ is capable of anything. 
There's nothing beyond his realm. The Bible says that 2,000 years ago, he came into the world that was full of lost sinners. He came to bring salvation. He came to bring deliverance. He came to bring peace with God. And the people that walked with him and talked with him missed what he came to bring. I want to give you four things this morning. If you're taking notes, you can follow along fairly easily. I'll try to make them as simple as possible. But I want to look at this text, and I want to see four things. Two things that I, don't, I want to encourage you not to miss that they missed back then. And then two things that I want to encourage you not to mistake. Again, I will read the text. He says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known the day this day, the things that, are make, that make for peace, for now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation." First thing I want to encourage you not to miss is don't miss God's compassion and God's mercy. We see at the very beginning of this text as Jesus Christ enters, he looks out over, over the city and he, he begins to weep. And this is not an, an ungrounded or unfounded tears. This is not a, a facade. Jesus Christ is truly feeling compassion for these people. I was reminded as I was reading and studying this text that the heart that we should have towards the lost world, to the, towards those who have even denied the Lord Jesus Christ, that our heart should not be that of judgmentalness, but we should look at these people as the Lord Jesus Christ did, and it should bring tears to our eyes. It should break our hearts to see people forsaking what Jesus Christ has done. But not only that, more importantly, is those who those who are there experiencing the grace and mercy of God, seeing his compassion and, and seeing his works and experiencing his miracles and, and being there when he raised Lazarus from the dead, experiencing all of these compassions and mercies and not being able to get it. Don't miss out on God's compassion and mercy. And first thought underneath that is it is a sincere compassion and mercy the word literally means to yearn in your bowels. It is, a, it is an internal feeling where, where, you, where you truly are able to feel what other people feel. It's this, the idea of taking your shoes off and putting theirs on and being in their situation in a, in a very real way. Jesus Christ could feel in that moment what all of those people were going to experience in the future. He could put himself into their shoes and he could feel and experience and he knew what they were getting ready to go through. He had compassion. He felt sympathy for them. The Bible says he wept or he wailed over them. The Bible tells us in Matthew 9 and verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The Bible tells us in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was getting ready to be placed on the cross that he, his, 
One of his final cries is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The Lord Jesus Christ's compassion for us, the Lord Jesus Christ's mercy and grace towards us is real. It's real, it's sincere, it's, it's deep, it's rooted in the sacrifice, uh, it's, it's displayed in the sacrifice of his own son on our behalf. God's mercy and God's grace is real. He showed his mercy and grace for three and a half years. He displayed his kindness towards people who were undeserving of his kindness. He healed those who didn't deserve to be healed. He blessed those who didn't deserve to be blessed. And he did it all so that he might be seen as worthy, powerful, and trustworthy. The Bible says in John 20 and verse 31, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you might have life in his name. These people were on the brink of missing God's mercy and missing God's grace. Here Jesus had just walked with them for three and a half years, had just shown them everything necessary to prove himself, and they were getting ready to walk away and miss out on everything that Jesus Christ meant in all of the things that he did. Jesus Christ's mercy is when he shows us kindness when we deserve wrath. It's when he shows us companionship when we deserve to be his enemy. It's when he walks with us and performs miracles amongst us and when he holds our hand and comforts us in difficult times. These are the mercies and graces of God. And he's constantly displaying these things to us. He's constantly displaying these things to us today in 2018 in Hollister, California, we have seen and experienced the mercy and the grace of God today. We experienced the mercy and grace of God this week. We watch the news and we think, oh, everything is falling apart. But, but in reality, we are constant recipients of the mercy and grace of God. If God were to give us what we deserve, folks, it would, this world would be horrendous. And daily God shows us mercy and daily God shows us grace and he shows us who he is and his desire is that we will embrace him, we will believe in him, we will trust him, we will pursue him with all that we are. When it comes to eternal things, God's mercy is that we deserve eternal condemnation and God mercies us by forgiveness by taking upon himself our sins and then hanging on a tree for us. Imagine that. We can't even begin to fathom somebody actually taking our crime and then taking the punishment for that crime for us. It's really unfathomable, isn't it? And yet that's the story of Jesus. That's what he pointed these people to. Not that they would fall in love with a system, but that they would fall in love with a person. And when Jesus Christ came into their world in Jerusalem on the first day and turned over their tables, that they would not become upset with him because they loved him and not their system. Some of us are so in love with our system that we've lost sight of the person of Jesus. 
His compassion is real. His mercies are real. If you read in Psalm 136, the Bible says over and over again in each verse, his mercies are new every morning. I was reminded this morning when I woke up and I breathed that God was merciful. Everything that we have is the mercy of God. And he's constantly displaying it to us. He's constantly showing it to us. The Bible says in Titus 3 and verse 5, he saved us not because of works done by our own righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing and regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And the reality of it is, folks, the only hope that we have is the mercy of God. The reason for that is, is we're all guilty of a crime, Right? We're all guilty of sin. There's no, there's no one in here, according to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one who has not sinned against God. We're all guilty of a crime. There's only one way that we can avoid the punishment for that crime. And that is by a judge showing us mercy. And God has shown us mercy. And he's displayed that mercy over and over and over again. And we've seen it every single morning. Here's my challenge to you. Don't miss the mercy and grace of God. Don't walk in church and sit in the congregation of God's people for three and a half years and never see what God intends to do. Don't watch other people experience the power of God and not experience it for yourself. Don't miss the mercy and the grace of God. So we see, number one, that it is sincere, it is real. We see, number two, it is seasonal. Don't miss the seasonality of the compassion and mercy of God. God's compassion and God's mercy are going to run out. Jesus is telling them, you will not be able to believe the truth anymore beyond this point. Jesus is saying to them, I've displayed my mercy to you. I've displayed my grace to you for this season. And, and, and the season that I have given you to believe is now over. And may I submit to you, church, Gentiles, people, we live in a generation of grace, but that generation has an end. There's a date set. We don't know what that date is, but God knows what that date is. We need to be serious about this thing, about not just experiencing or seeing God's grace and mercy in others' lives, but we need to embrace that. When we see God's grace, the fact that God graced you to bring you to Grace Bible Church this morning, he sovereignly brought you here. It was no accident that you walked through those doors. It was the grace of God, the goodness of God that brought you into these doors. Now, embrace that. Embrace that. And embrace not just the not just the grace and mercy, but the person behind that grace and that mercy. Jesus is closing. Listen, the reason Jesus is crying is because he's closing the door on the Jewish people. 
He's going to reopen it according to Romans 11. But that's why he's crying here. He's closing the door. And when he walks in, three and a half years of in everything and anything, everything, grace and mercy and miracles, and he walks into Jerusalem, and the first thing he does, he goes into the temple, and he turns tables over. We're done. We're done playing. This is serious. God's compassion and God's mercy are seasonal. When you see it in your life, embrace it. There's no guarantee that it will be there forever. The terms in this text, the term this day, and then the term at the end, which is the time, is implication of something that is seasonal, something that is not forever. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, for he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Listen, God, God has reached out to you this morning. He brought you to his house so that you would, yes, hear and yes, see his grace and, and know that his grace and his mercy are real. But more than that, he wants you to embrace it as being for you. He wants you to experience the salvation that only he can bring. And let me say this to you. You may be sitting here and you're saved. You know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior I will say this to you, that God's grace and mercy are not just meant to be embraced one time. They're meant to be embraced every single day of your life. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, he will not allow us to be tempted above that we are able, but he will, with the temptation, make a way of escape. He will, with the temptation, that means when the temptation comes, grace comes too. But you know what it also means? That when you give in to the temptation, grace leaves. Grace isn't always there. We have this mentality. We have this idea that we own the rights to grace. He owns the rights to grace. And he shows it when he wants to. And he shows mercy when he wants to. And we must embrace it when we have the opportunity. This is the day. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, he is reaching out to you now through this message. Through his word, today is the day of salvation. And I know our God is gracious and merciful. Tomorrow could also be the day. But not a one of us have that promise. Number three, in regards to don't miss his grace and mercy. It is specialized compassion, or grace and mercy. He says this, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And then he says the end, because you did not know the time of your visitation. There's something very important to this portion or these few phrases in this text. What Jesus Christ is saying here is this. 
The way to salvation is to know the things that make peace. In other words, another way of saying this phrase is actually this. The way of salvation, the way of deliverance is to know the one who makes peace. The way we experience deliverance, the way we experience the grace of God, the way that we experience and embrace the power of God is by embracing Jesus. It's by knowing Jesus. It's by growing in our knowledge of Jesus. As we heard yesterday, it's by loving and treasuring Jesus above all else. Here's the problem. They didn't know what was the cause of peace. So they sought everything other than the one thing that could cause peace. And you can imagine it in your mind this morning, what did they think was gonna cause peace? Jesus is gonna come, he's gonna wipe out all those Roman soldiers and all those Roman leaders and we're gonna have peace. Listen to me. Jesus made peace like this. That's how Jesus made peace. You see, the problem with these people in this text is this. They didn't look for a lamb. They looked for a king. And because they looked for a king instead of a lamb, they forsook the lamb who was the king. You see, some of us aren't looking for the right thing. We're missing everything that God is trying to do. We're missing it all because we're not looking for what he wants to accomplish. Who is the one that brings peace? Jesus is. How does he bring peace? He doesn't bring peace by governing. He doesn't bring peace by defeating foes. He doesn't bring peace by dominating leaders. He doesn't bring peace by healing and providing. Jesus Christ brought peace by his own sacrifice. Ephesians 2 says that he broke down those walls and, and his blood made peace between us and God. Listen to me, folks. The problem today and the problem in our world today and the problem in our world back then is, is not that you don't get along with your neighbor. It is that you don't get along with God. Jesus Christ did not come to fix, to fix the Jewish people's problems with the Roman people. Jesus Christ came to fix the Jewish people's problems with God. And Jesus Christ has come not to fix your problem with your neighbor, but to fix your problem with God. And I'll tell you something, folks. Our problem with God is way more significant than our problem with, is with our neighbor. And the outcome is far more important. It comes by embracing Jesus Christ. Knowing, knowing that thing that brings peace. And embracing him. And when he visits you, and listen, he visited them for, for three and a half years. He has visited us for 2,000 years but we don't know when his time and his end will come. The Bible promises us this morning that if we come to God through Jesus Christ, he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. He promises us this morning that if we will come to him in and through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he will receive us and he will have peace with us. 
It's an amazing picture in the Old Testament. There was a temple, a place where, where the high priest would go every year and he would bring a sacrificial lamb. And that sacrificial lamb had to be perfect, without blemish, without spot. It had to be absolutely perfect. Couldn't have been anything wrong with it. And if that high priest walked into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was, the, the, the Bible teaches us that God would receive him and accept him as a friend. He would make a sacrifice, satisfy the wrath of God. He would then leave. If that high priest entered into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was and he did not have the proper sacrifice, he would be killed on the spot. No one, the Bible tells, when, when Moses asked God, God, let me see your glory, the Lord said, if I show you my glory, you will die. But listen, we can enter into the presence of God today as long as we have the proper sacrifice. We can come to him in Christ and Christ in us and we can experience forgiveness and we can experience help and we can experience grace and we can experience mercy. We can experience all of the kindnesses of God, not because we're worthy of those things, but because we have the proper sacrifice and that sacrifice is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is the one who is capable of making peace with you and God. If you miss that, as they did, you might miss it all. Because that's the truth. The one truth that the people missed in this text was that they were sinners and God was at war with them and they needed Jesus Christ not to set up a kingdom, but they needed Jesus Christ to hang on a tree and to pay for their sins fully. Don't miss it, folks. Don't miss the grace and the mercy of God and the fact that it comes in and through Jesus Christ. Don't miss those things. I'm gonna give you the last three things and I'm gonna do them very quickly. I want you just to hear them really Two mistakes, one miss. Mistake number one, don't mistake mercy and weakness. Don't mistake mercy for weakness or lack of sovereignty. Don't mistake mercy for weakness or lack of sovereignty. In other words, yes, God has been very gracious to us. He was very gracious to the Jewish people for three and a half years, right? What does he tell them in this text? He tells them, I'm getting ready to blind you. And then when I'm done blinding you, I'm going to judge you. Sometimes we get into this idea. It's like when you pay your bills, right? You get this grace period. And so you think because you had a grace period that they're not going to ever come down on you. No, they're going to come down on you. The grace period is not meant for you to take advantage of. God has a season where he has poured out his grace and his mercy and continues to do it today to the United States of America, to Hollister, California. We have this moment to embrace the work of Jesus Christ. But don't mistake that, oh, well, it will just last forever. Oh, God is, God is so loving, right, that he would never, you can fill in the end of that statement, 
God is so loving that he would never send anyone to hell. Is that true? It's not, is it? Matter of fact, a lot of really solid, or not solid, but a lot of used to be solid theologians have now begun to even question the, in, the realities of hell. Don't mistake mercy for weakness or a lack of sovereignty. God says that he was going to blind them, to hide the truth from them. He not only tells us that, but in 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2, which is dealing with, with the church age, he says this, after the rapture of the church, he says, therefore God will send them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in unrighteousness. Don't mistake God's love for a lack of justice. Don't mistake God's mercy for a lack of, of, of power and sovereignty and control. Number three, don't mistake God's sovereignty of blinding, right? Sovereignty and blinding. Don't mistake God's sovereignty for a lack of responsibility. In this text, and this text is repeated over in the book of Matthew as well, in this text and in the text in Matthew, who is called responsible? Who is called responsible? They are. The people are responsible. Don't mistake God's sovereignty for a lack of responsibility. We sin because we want to. We sin because we like it. We sin because it's in our hearts to sin according to our depravity. We don't have to be forced to sin. Anybody in here have to be forced to sin? If you did, you didn't, wouldn't raise your hand anyway. <laughs> Nobody has to be forced to sin. We do it because we want to. But yet at the same time, God says this, I will, not only are your eyes blinded because you don't want to see the truth, but I will blind them even further. We must embrace the grace, embrace the mercy. This is our time. This is our opportunity. He says it over in Matthew 23. This is a requote of this text. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your, ch your children together as a hen gathers her brood under their wings, but you were not willing. Where does the responsibility go? Where does the responsibility for our sin go? It goes right on us. Remember this, folks. Every sin that I've ever committed, I am responsible for. And every grace and every mercy and every kindness that I have ever received, he is responsible for. Don't mistake sovereignty with lack of responsibility. And then lastly, don't mistake responsibility for a lack of purpose. God is doing something. 
even he says in Romans 11, he's talking about the very event that he's dealing with here where the Jewish people are gonna turn their back on him, they're gonna reject the gospel, and here's what he says in Romans 11. Why did the Jewish people reject the gospel? Was it just so that they would fall and fail? He says, no, they rejected the gospel so it would come to the Gentiles. The reality of it is this, God's purpose in all of this Never forsake that God has a purpose in everything. It doesn't mean embrace sin. It means embrace grace. It means embrace mercy, embrace Jesus. That's what it means. But at the end of the day, if you choose to go down a path that's not God's path, don't think that you've somehow escaped God because he's right there. And he's going to use your decisions. He's going to use your path to work out his plan. He always does. He always does. Don't mistake responsibility for a lack of purpose. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I close with this. Don't miss it. In the garden, Adam and Eve missed it. In the flood, in the time of Noah, all of the people missed it. In the first coming of Jesus, the Jewish people and all of the people who were there missed it. In the coming of the Holy Spirit, we have missed it. And the Holy Spirit is so active today and so working amongst us. We see his grace and we see his power and we see his strength every single day in our lives. But yet when it comes to the things that are deep in our lives, when it comes to God turning our lives around, the Holy Spirit turning our lives around and pointing us in the right direction, we do exactly what they did 2,000 years ago. We love the Holy Spirit as long as he does everything that corresponds with our plans. But when the Holy Spirit says it's not about your plans, it's about God's plans. What do we say? We say no. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, to bring repentance. He comes to open the eyes of the blind, to bring submission. He comes to, to sanctify the soul of the believer, to bring holiness. This is what the Holy Spirit does in John 16, 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then Jesus says this in Mark 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness for he is guilty of an eternal sin. Listen to me, folks. Our day of visitation is today. The Spirit of God is with us. The Spirit of God is showing us his power and his might every moment of every day. We get to see it. We get to experience it. The question this morning for you and the question for me is, will we in this moment embrace not what the Spirit is doing, but will we embrace the Spirit of God? Do we believe that he's capable 
of taking my life going this direction and turning it in this direction and that it would actually in the end be good for me? Do we embrace those realities for all of the things that the Spirit does today and all of the things that Christ did were meant to point us to himself that we might see and believe? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness, your grace to send your son to live amongst the people for three and a half years, to send your spirit now to live amongst us for, th- for 2,000 years, to bring salvation, to bring deliverance, to bring the new birth, to bring about repentance and faith. I pray, I plead with you, Lord, that anybody that's here that, doesn't, that hasn't embraced the work of the Holy Spirit or the power of Christ or the crucifixion of Christ or his resurrection, I pray today would be that day. Lord, that they would fall down before you and they would confess their unworthiness and and embrace what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did for them in bearing their sins and dying for them and resurrecting powerfully over all things evil. Those of us who are here that have accepted the grace, your grace, and received the work of Christ and are experiencing the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you will help us to embrace his work, to become holy, separated, and sanctified, to do a work that's bigger than we are. We just thank you, Lord, for who you are and for what you do. In Christ's name, amen.